please, Paul. Just a quick reminder of the overview of Romans as we're um, working through at the moment. It's all about the king's revolution. It's about as the global revolution is underway, that Jesus sealed at the cross and in his resurrection. In the very beginning, the first two chapters, Paul is setting the scene. He's setting the bad news first before we can fully appreciate the good news. And he's saying sin is a universal problem. We can all think, yeah, but I'm better than them. At least I'm not like Hitler. At least I'm not like that person, X, Y, or Z. We kind of put ourselves on a pedestal. Sin is a universal problem. We are all in the same boat and we are all lost without him. So in these first two chapters, Paul is helping us explain that. And he will go on into the following two, three chapters after that to explain that no one is righteous. No one is upstanding before God. No one is holy. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But today we're going to find out a little bit more about that. This um, passage we're about to read is a bit of a clobber passage. It's used to point the finger at certain people who do certain things. It's become quite famous for that. But we're going to find out in a minute that that misses the entire point. It is about that, but it's about everything else. Sin is a universal problem, and none of us can point the finger at another person. So, third image. If you want that overview back up again later, I can show it to you if you want to make notes, but, or I can send it to you. Final one. Today, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the second half of Romans chapter 1. We're going to understand about how our brokenness is a vertical problem. Our relationship, our vertical relationship with God is broken without Christ. And therefore, that affects our horizontal relationships with each other. That's broken as well. Then we understand that all of us are in the same boat and our, our brokenness is a universal problem. But then I won't leave it there. I'll finish on the good news that this problem of brokenness is fully restorable in Jesus. We can look at vertical brokenness, horizontal brokenness, universal brokenness, and then the fact that brokenness can be restored. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is why I started off talking about God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, their lack of upstanding, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his, internal, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. He's going to hand it over. So that's what you want, off you go. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for each other. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, 
insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Lord, this is in many ways quite a heavy chapter. But Lord, we trust that you want to reveal some really precious truths through it this morning to each one of us. Lord, let my heart not be hardened by this chapter, but let me see the sin at work in my heart and what you've done about it. Let us see the majesty of your goodness around this darkness. Let us see the light in the dark as we dig deeper into this amazing truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, vertical, our vertical brokenness. See, what Paul does here, in the first part, he talks about our vertical relationship with God is broken as humanity. Like I say, it's known as a bit of a clobber passage, talking about homosexuality and pointing the finger and saying, the Bible says you mustn't do it, so stop it. A, it doesn't work like that, and B, that misses the point. This is a God's eye point of view of humanity. And by the end of it, as we're going to dig again and have another look, it proves to be more than just a one-issue passage. It relates to all of humanity. Every single one of us in this room. We need to remember this whole letter to the church in Rome is Paul's long case for the prosecution about there's a revolution underway. There's a kingdom at work where the meek will inherit the earth, where the wise are made foolish and the foolish are made wise, where the first will be last, where the timid move in his authority, and where humans get to discover what it means to be fully human. That's what we as the church are a part of, and it's available to you if you're not. He's turning the world the right way up from the inside out. And you can choose to acknowledge it and jump on board. Or you can choose to reject it out of willfulness or ignorance, but it's already underway and it's unstoppable. And that's what his church lives out loud. And so in light of that, we need to recognise, when we talk about our desires, and this focuses on sexual desires for a large chunk in the middle, when we look at our desires, we need to stop seeing them as black and white, good or bad, filthy ones and harmless ones. We've got to be very careful. We've got to need to see them for what they are. Desires are simply affection for something. And God has put desires in our heart which, when we sinned, when we fell right at the beginning, they got twisted. But God put them there for a reason. Affection for food is good. If you don't have affection for food, you won't eat and you won't, and you won't survive. You either get malnourished or you will die. Affection for food is a good thing. That's a desire. It's a good desire that God's put in us. Affection for food is good because we need sustenance. However, affection for too much is bad for you. It's an over-desire, damages you. Or, affection for just sweet things is bad for you and will damage you. The problem isn't the desire. It's not a bad desire. It's how we channel it. It's what we do with that desire. And the same comes to sex. Right in Genesis, at the beginning, God made everything. He made male and female. He said, go forth and multiply. And he declared that everything was very good. That includes sex. Sex is great. Sex is good. But there's a place for it. And in that time, our vertical relationship with God was perfect. It wasn't broken. And therefore, our horizontal relationship with each other and with the world around us just flowed out of that. The horizontal relationship flows out of our vertical relationship. But as soon as we subverted our relationship with God... It wreaks havoc on our relationships with each other and with the rest of creation. See, when we decide that he isn't the number one in our lives, we live for something else. 
We never live for nothing. Is it C.S. Lewis described our, or it Luther, described our hearts as idol factories? We're always living for something. If we don't live for him as number one, we're living for something else. And in so doing, that something else trumps all our choices. It, 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 it drives where we channel our passions. It, it consumes our thoughts and eventually it consumes our actions and even our biology. Our bodies change the more we do certain things. And so living for God changes us. Living for something else changes us. And so here Paul is starting right at the beginning. He's saying it starts with the vertical. The vertical relationship with God is the core of the problem. You can try and fix it and put a plaster over stuff, but until you fix that, you won't fix the horizontal. And it's quite blunt, it's quite brutal. It says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's saying his glory is quite plain to everybody. Many, many people, even today, say there is no God. But here, God's word is saying, actually, it's quite plain. It's there. I know people have said to me, well, how can I be held accountable to someone I haven't seen or I haven't met? I understand that. That's a fair question. However, I can be ignorant of the road signs and still be guilty of breaking the speed limit. Hey, eh? Sorry, officer, I didn't see the road signs. I didn't realise there's only a 30. So, well, bad luck, Sonny. I'm still nicking you. It's, it's, we, can, we can plead ignorance, but actually, you're still guilty of breaking the law. Just because you haven't seen something you've been ignorant of, it doesn't mean you're innocent. God's existence and involvement is evident around us. And you, but you can still not see something that is being shown to you. The amount of times Jenny has told me where something is, and I've gone there, and I'm staring, thinking, nope, it's not here. It's like, Jenny, are you sure it's here? She's like, I'll put it there. It's in the bottom right of the cupboard. I'm like, bottom right of the cupboards? It's not there. She's like, don't make me come there. Don't make me come and show you. And she'll come along and she'll go, there it is. And you're like, oh, yeah. It's in front of me. It's in front of me. The amount of times I do it. It was there, it was plain, and I still didn't see it. The problem wasn't its existence or lack of. The problem was my ignorance or my lack of focus. And that's the same with the existence of God. When we do Christianity and raps, I mean, Ollie will talk the hind legs of a donkey about that, about the, about the, the evidence for the, for the glory of God. When we look at the constants in physics, when we look at what is beauty and why do we treasure beauty, when we look at morality, where does that come from, and so on. It goes on and on and on and on. The existence of God, how do we even get here? The evidence is there, the road signs are there. You can choose to see them or you can choose to ignore them. So Paul's saying... His glory is plain, but then he says, verse 23, then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Instead of worshipping what is immortal, we can turn our backs on him and bow down to creative things. Now here it talks about images of animals and we may feel that's a bit archaic and, and a bit you know, back for the ancient times. It does still happen around the world in different places. Maybe not, just not in our society, but it's still talking about Worshipping of money, worshipping of power, worshipping of body. Body image is a big thing in our society, particularly amongst our young kids. Instagram, the young kids, they're all posing a certain way to appeal to others. There's a body image worship going on. It's rife. But worshipping other people as well. Sometimes in valuing their esteem, wanting celebrity status, want to be want to be approved, wanting people's love and, and people to like you. There's, you want people's esteem, but it's also worshipping people as objects. 
objectifying people, desiring their bodies. Pornography is a scourge, and it's become increasingly so. It's become an epidemic the more it's become available. And I've just got to say, pornography is not exclusive to teenage boys and young men. That's the stereotype. Pornhub is one of the main porn websites, and it has nearly 200 years of video uploaded to it at the moment. It's 173 years worth of video at the last count. And what they've done, there is a place you can access their statistics without going anywhere near the videos. They've released their statistics about who does searches on their site for videos. It's not just teenage boys. It's women as well. Numbers are hugely increasing. Women are searching for pornography. OAPs are searching for it. It's rife and it's everyone's searching for it. It's normal and half the time it's in your pocket at work. It's just, it's just there. It's easy. It's easy to do. What I've got to say is, first of all, don't think you're immune to it. Don't think it's not relevant to you as a type of person or to your friends. You'll be surprised. Just want to say that. I also just want to say, if you do struggle with it, you're not alone. You're not alone. If you're in this room, you're someone who finds that difficult to resist. I can guarantee, and I've talked to a number of people in this room about different things in private, you will not be the only one. I just want to say that. But that is an idol worship of the body. You're idolising, you're desiring other people's bodies. It's an objectification, it's an idol worship. It's exactly the same thing that Paul's talking about here. And this is just another proof about how when our vertical relationship with God breaks down or isn't always number one, it affects our horizontal relationship with the people around us. Do you see? And so Paul then goes on, having established vertical first, he then goes on to horizontal. Verse, uh, verses 24 to 27. Verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped something else. He's, he's saying, if you want that, if you really, really want that, I'm going to give you over to it. You see what damage it does to you. He's giving people what they want. But these lusts, in verse 24, when he says God gave them up in the lust, that word is about over-desires. Remember what I was saying about food earlier? Desire for food is a good thing. If we over-desire food, it's a bad thing. The desire's not the problem, it's us. And it's the same here with sex as well. It's less about desiring bad things, but over-desiring good things. To enjoy a career is okay. To want a career is okay. But to over-desire it, to worship becoming celebrated in the workplace... Worshipping the idea of becoming a somebody at work. That leaves a trail of victims in your wake and a hardened heart. A desire to work isn't a bad thing. A desire to have a career isn't a bad thing. It's what we do with that if we over-desire it. And that's the word that's used here. And so to enjoy sex in its rightful place is okay. But the world we live in has elevated sex and romance to become the be-all and end-all of human experience. It's a Western thing. We are living in the aftermath of the sexual revolution, 1960s to 1980s. And while that's much celebrated, the message is now as a result, if you're not having sex on a regular basis, there's something wrong with you, you're missing out, go and have fun, it's harmless if you're consenting and you're doing it safely. That's the message. And on paper, away from God's perspective, just hearing, hearing their voices, I get that, I understand why they... Well, if everyone's consenting and we're doing it safely, what's the problem? I get that. I totally get it. But as a result, the number of sexual partners people have has rapidly increased. In 1990, 1991, the number, average number of sexual partners a woman would have was 
0.7 of a man. I'm pretty sure it's, it's an average. 3.7. Now, 7.7. It's more than doubled. Men in 1990-91, their average uh, number of sexual partners they had was 8.6. It's now 11.7. That's gone up another 40-50%. And abortion is now at a high. Regular checks at sexual health clinics is common practice for many, many people. It's what they do because of the relationships they're having. Half a million sexually transmitted infections are diagnosed in this country alone every year. So while the sexual revolution might be a wonderful thing, look, look what it's done to us. Just the facts are there. The truth is sex is a gift from God and those statistics demonstrate a reason why he advocates a safe place for it. Fire in the fireplace, in the hearth, is a wonderful thing. It's beautiful and it's warming and it invigorates the house. I love fire. That fire in the middle of my lounge is devastating and burns my house down. It's a beautiful thing, but there's a good place for it. It's the same with sex. And so here it comes. Here's the tricky verses, verse 26. With all that in mind, now listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Contrary to our society's beliefs, scripture is blatant about homosexuality. It's there. It's quite plain. And it says that it is contrary to God's blueprint for us. Paul here mentions women as well, which helps demonstrate that he's not just talking about one particular type of homosexual relationship in the Roman world. Some people argue he was just talking about there was an abusive, exploitative type of relationship with an adult man would abuse a young boy on a regular basis. And that's the kind of relationship that Paul is saying is wrong, but everything else is okay. It's not he's talking about women here, and about men for men, not men for boys. It's quite, it's quite plain in the reading. But it's not just Paul who's got a downer on this. Paul has, Paul has good reason to spell this out bluntly, because Jesus does as well, in a different way. In Matthew chapter 15, Matt, uh, Jesus is talking about what, what defiles a person. He's talking about sexual immorality. Matthew chapter 15. When he uses the word sexual immorality, what he's using there is the word porneia. I wonder where we got the word porn from. Porneia. What that is, is a catch-all term for sexual immorality as in anything outside of between one husband and one wife. Anything else. So the whole spectrum of bestiality and adultery and homosexuality and incest and, and just... Sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, even of the opposite sex, that this world would think is fine. Jesus is saying anything outside of one husband, one wife, is porneia, is sexual immorality. I don't think you can get much blunter than that. And also in describing God's ordained place for sex, he, Jesus appeals back to Genesis and appeals back to that man and woman in marriage as well. Now people will still say, but they're consenting adults, no one's harmed. What's the problem? Actually, the truth is they are harming themselves spiritually. We harm ourselves spiritually if we sleep with someone else who's not their wife. I've slept with someone who's not my wife. Not since I've been married, you'll be pleased to hear, but beforehand. I slept with my girlfriend when I was younger. This is included here, that was wrong, I've had to repent of it. You are harming yourself spiritually. Paul in 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 6, verse 18. He says, the same again, same word. Flee from sexual immorality, porneia. Anything outside of husband and wife. Every other sin a person commits, here's the thing. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We do, when we're honest with ourselves, we do understand that sex is more than just physical contact. When you're in a relationship with someone and they sleep with someone else, all hell breaks loose. There's a problem. If that was just physical contact, what's the issue? We know there's a spiritual dimension to it. It bothers us. Even if we don't agree with these passages, even if we're not Christians, we know there's something spiritually wrong with sleeping with someone other than you outside of a committed relationship. It's just a physical act. What's the problem? No, there is a problem. Why? There's a spiritual dimension to it. It carries a spiritual weight. While a seemingly purely fleshly act outside of marriage, it, forms, it bears a form of pollution, actually. But the reality is, we all do still get tempted. We all do still get tempted. And so when it comes to homosexuality, we've got to be careful not to point the finger and say, stop it. <laughs> you can't tell someone to stop it. We all get tempted in different ways. Some of us for people of the opposite sex, some of us for people of the same sex. It's, it's the, actually the same problem at, at, at heart. I've had crushes on male friends at school when I was growing up. Teenage years, are all over, your thoughts are all over the shop. I remember when I was a paramedic, I had a young girl who was, she was crawling up the walls. Her parents were in a desperate state. We were trying to get doctors and psychiatrists involved. In the middle of the night, she just wanted to commit suicide because she was having thoughts about attraction for her female friends. And it was driving her nuts. And we tried to explain to her, actually, as a teenager, you do often have those kind of thoughts. It's just your brain trying to work out who you are. It's, that can be quite normal. When I was growing up, I had a couple of male mates I had a bit of a crush on. Even in adulthood, if I've seen a certain male Hollywood actor who's all buff and got nice eyes, I've actually, when they come on screen, my heart skipped. Now, I'm not trying to pretend to be something I'm not for the sake of this sermon or to relate with certain people. I'm not, not trying to be something I'm not. I am straight, but I can, even then, I can see fragments of something in me. I can see splinters of that brokenness in me. And some people do carry these unshakable thoughts into the future. And they have no sexual desire for people of the opposite sex, but only for the same. You can't turn that off. We need to love these people. That's you. We love you. We want to help you. We want to walk this journey with you. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Is it down to upbringing? Can be, but not guaranteed, not completely. I know people who are gay and their upbringing has been fine and loving and not wonky in any way. It can be because of that, but not always. Is it because of genetics? That's often a claim that's made. There is no scientific evidence that is down to genetics. But regardless, some people have same-sex attraction and they cannot just shake it off. Simply to go, it's wrong, doesn't help them. It's completely unkind. We need to walk a journey with them as we would with anybody else when they're struggling with something else. Ultimately, whatever it is we struggle with, complete fulfilment is only found in Jesus. And he has a blueprint for us, a way of living, that he knows what's best for us. I will just say, we're going to run out of time, but I will just say this. It can still sound very unfair, and I'll still get it. I want to, I want to, I want to I mean, To say to someone, well, if you have same-sex attraction, you therefore, you're not going to desire a woman, so you can't get married, so you can't have sex with anyone for the rest of your life. It's easy for me to say because I can get married or I am married and, and so on. It's, it's easy to point the finger, well, you just have to be celebrated for the rest of your life. Off you go. Again, that's really, that's unhelpful. I get why that's difficult. But what we do have to understand 
is that that does actually buy into the world's problem that, or the world's message that sex and romance are the be-all and end-all. I know some people who are celibate, who have embraced it and they love it and they have really, really deep, 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 deep platonic relationships with people, deeper relationships with people that aren't sexual that a lot of married couples are missing. We all need those deep relationships anyway. We mustn't despise celibacy. We need to celebrate it for what it was. Paul talks about it in other passages. It's a good thing. It depends on what your calling is. It depends on what God's laid out for you. And it's about submission and understanding what he wants for you. It's not easy. And I'm not going to dismiss that. But we need to not buy into, what if you're straight, well, good for you, but at least I'm all right, Jack. It doesn't work like that. It's just a different journey we need to walk. And both of them come with their difficulties. There are some really, well, I could spend ages on this subject, but I'm going to finish it there. But there are some really good websites. Livingout.org is brilliant. I know a guy, Peter, in Canterbury. One of his videos is on there, tells his story. There's a number of videos, really helpful testimonies. It's called livingout.org. That's a really good website that helps on this. True Freedom Trust is another one you can find online. There are books by people like Sam Albury, who's written his God Anti-Gay. It's a really helpful little book. Um, he has same-sex attraction. He's living a celibate life, and he doesn't find it easy. He's honest and open about that. He's written this amazing book that says, this is what Jesus says, this is what the Bible says, and this is how I'm going to live for him, even though I find it hard. It's a brilliant book. And coming from someone like him, rather than someone who doesn't have that struggle, gives it authority. Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. There are others as well. But this isn't all about one issue. Our brokenness is a universal problem. And quite often we can focus on those verses and forget the ones that come just after. Context, 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 isn't it? Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, twice over, he lists things that have no place in God's kingdom. He lists sexual immorality that gets mentioned, but so is thieving and greed and getting drunk and reviling and swindling. And here again, Paul, at the end of chapter 1, he lists other examples. Verse 29, so we forget these bits, don't we? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We can point the finger, yeah, boo. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, hang on, this is me now, slanderers, hang on, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, I've never been that much, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Put your hand up if you've never been disobedient to your parent. <laughs> foolish, who's never been foolish? Faithless, who's never been faithless? Heartless, who's never been heartless? Ruthless. Actually... None of us get off scot-free, do we? And here's the thing. When it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to any other temptation or anything other that, that stains God's kingdom, here's the truth. I am not straight. I'm crooked. None of us are straight. All of us outside of Jesus are crooked. That's the truth. <clears throat> As a church, we can get caught up in this hot potato subject and it's all about that. And some churches accept the message around us that homosexuality is okay and they endorse it or downplay or deny scriptures, clear teaching. That's what some churches do. That is not us at Beacon Church. We just want to be, hard as it is, we want to be honest with what scripture says and live in the light of it. Other people, though, turn homosexuality into the sin that eclipses all sin. Well, that's not right either. Jesus was tempted in every way. 
yet he never crumbled. Now the simple answer to that could be, well, he was God. It's easy for him. If it was easy for him, he wouldn't have been tempted. Think about it. It's because he was fully God and fully man. And the man part of him was just, he was fully tempted in every single way. Yet he still never crumbled. How? Because his vertical relationship with the Father defined his horizontal relationships with the people in the world around him. His love for the Father trumped his passions and his choices. But what about a past and our future sins? It's not just about living now. What about a past and our future sins? Well, on the cross, he took our crookedness and he made it straight. He took our sins. He, took, he, he suffered as a curse in our place. He, he bore God's judgment in our place so we don't have to. He took our crookedness and he made it straight. And that's what it means to become a Christian, placing your trust in him as your rescuer, in him as your saviour, in him as your substitutes who stood in your place. And in him, you get made straight once again. And you can live a fully open, vertical, healthy relationship with Father that then infects your horizontal relationships with the world around you. Directing our desires is an act of worship. Having them is not wrong. Being sexually attracted is not wrong. It's what you do with it that's the issue. Resisting temptation is an act of declaring, I love him more. There is a place in resisting temptation, in discipline and accountability and not going to certain places or being with certain people or having someone to phone when you're feeling tempted or turn the internet off, whatever it might be. That's healthy stuff, but that won't fix the problem. The thing that trumps resisting temptation every time is loving him more. So our vertical relationship sorts out our horizontal relationships. God is glorified when a wife says no to sleeping with a work colleague because of her love for Jesus. God is glorified when a man with same-sex attraction says yes to celibacy out of his love for Jesus. God is glorified when the single woman remains a virgin out of her love for Jesus. God is glorified when a husband refuses to take a second glance at the pretty girl on the high street out of his love for Jesus and his wife. It always trumps it. Love is not simply a feeling, it's an act. It's a choice. That's what love is. Whether we're straight, same-sex attracted, married, single, whoever we are, we have opportunity to give him glory with our bodies and with our minds. This is something for all of us. The King's Revolution has restored the way of being right with God and thus with each other. This revolution is turning the world upside down. Do you want to live for him, even though it's harder, it's going against the grain, but it glorifies him more? Out of love for him, do you want to be that person? And that includes resisting temptation when it comes to the world's God of sex. It's all around us. It's everywhere. Let's reclaim sex and other desires. It's not just all about that. Let's reclaim these things as, for what they're intended to be as gifts from God, glorifying him in the things we say yes to and the things we say no to because we love him. Let me just pray. Lord, you're a good God. You created